1 Samuel 16. We'll be in this, this entire chapter this morning. Now, we, we live in a world, um, to get our Western culture, where appearances are of, of really high value and priority. Um, I was doing a little research, actually found out that the U.S. is one of the two top nations which, which have the largest apparel retail markets in the world. Um, estimated revenues right now every year is around like $2 trillion just on apparel uh, retail clothes. So our, uh, it, it's telling something about the, the premium, about the emphasis and priority of our, our appearances, our, our first impressions, how we look and the judgments we tend to think we can make quickly by those appearances. Uh, I came across an article pointing to some recent research, trying to look at this from a kind of a secular sort of psycho- psychology uh, view and our premium on appearances. And, and one of the things that it says is there are consistent advantages to having the right look. Looking at some, some certain studies that defendants who look trustworthy are less likely to receive the death penalty. And attractive-looking hosts can charge higher rents on Airbnb. That's what uh, studies show. So I guess if you look good, you can charge more on your Airbnb. Uh, But it goes on to say that when people judge each other, they focus on three overarching dimensions of character. Morality, whether someone is trustworthy and honest. Competence, whether someone is intelligent and skilled. And sociably, whether someone is friendly and warm. And of these three dimensions, morality is generally the most important. In social situations, our first priority is to figure out whether someone is going to help or harm us. And this this first thing, it comes, what often is just appearance, what we see. An attempt to quickly assess, is this person good or bad, trustworthy, or are they going to harm me? And, and I appreciate the secular study even pointing to the fact that morality is a high-ranking thing of importance. And even this, in this, what one person sees as and judges by appearance as, a, as moral or right, another person might think quite, quite the opposite of that. We can't really just see with our eyes and know. And that's why the article actually would summarize with this statement, the judgments we make from appearances are often wrong. Our perceptions, how we assess by appearance alone, can be, can be misleading. How we see incorrect, and we imagine we import all of the different things, our history, our experiences, our biases, and then you mix it up with our hearts and our pride and our sinful judgments. And so what do, we, what do we do with that? Is there a better way to see ourselves, to see our world and others? Well, as Christians, we we know the answer, right? There's something outside of us that we need, namely God, who truly sees, who truly knows all, and who is good and wise. And we need need humility to to look to the Lord to understand, to lead us, to help us see as we should. And and this, this reality has been something similar we've been observing thus far in the story of Samuel. What Israel needed to grasp but what we need to grasp is that we need to look to something outside of us, to the Lord, our King, to know what is important, valuable, true, righteous, and good. This is what uh, commentator Andrew Reed wrote. He said, The failure of Israel throughout the Old Testament is not pr- properly listening to God's word and obeying it, and not seeing things as he sees them and acting accordingly. 
not, they're not looking to the king to, to hear what we should do and to see as they should. And we, we read last week this, this sad, spiraling and sobering story in chapter 15 of God fully rejecting Saul. He had not listened to the Lord's voice. He rejected his word. He, he did what he saw was best, and his kingship was torn from him. And so though the prophet Samuel had declared that this had happened, Saul is going to continue to function in our story in this kingly position for some time. But, but we've come to understand Saul was a, a man's king, the, the people's choosing, and this was judgment coming to him. Yet today we're going to see that something, something of the promise that was coming. God had declared that a better king of his choosing would lead his people faithfully. And he was coming. And chapter 16 marks a transition to this, this neighbor, this better one that is to come. And we are introduced to our character, David, this morning. Israel had their go-to king like other nations, and that didn't go so well. And now God will unfold his plan and his king. And we're going to just be looking at our chapter in just two pieces. Actually, your your Bible probably has those broken up. Um, And I'm just kind of borrowing some headers from this this commentator, Andrew Reed. And we're going to see this really is about David being chosen. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we go to his, his holy word. Well, God, we, we thank you for reminding us this morning already by your spirit of, of, of how you see things differently than we see. And you've helped us this morning to be reminded and to see your great love for us in, and disp- displayed in your son, Jesus. And, and as we open up 1 Samuel 16 this morning, you have that same goal for us to, to encounter your son, Jesus and your extravagant grace and your love. But we need your spirit to help us, so please help me, help us all to, to hear, to see, and to worship this morning. Amen. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles there, you could just back up a little bit, and we see in chapter 15 that Samuel and Saul separate and depart, and Samuel is grieving, and Samuel is in Ramah and Saul to his home in Gibeah. And some time has passed. And then we pick up here in verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel is continuing to grieve over the broken condition of Israel, of what has happened, this great fall with Saul. And God basically says, stop, stop it. <laughs> Sometimes you just need somebody to say, stop it. And God seems to just say that to, to Samuel, stop it. Go fill your horn with oil and go to Bethlehem, the home of Jesse. Now, if we, we need to look closely at these words from the Lord. He says, For I have provided for myself a king. For I have provided for myself a king. There's lots in this little statement. Now, remember, Saul's appointment was because it was Israel's demand to have a king like other nations. And so we saw in 
back in chapter 8, that same, that they told Samuel, appoint for us a king. Israel didn't want the Lord to be, Yahweh, to be their king. And so God commanded Samuel to do that, and he did. And then Samuel later says of Saul, he is the king, your king, who you have chosen for yourselves. And then later, and the king whom you have chosen for who you have asked. They asked for a king, and God gave them the king of their desires. Their their choosing. They had their chance, and we saw how that has unfolded. Now, it's important that we remember the Lord would institute kingship. It wasn't ultimately the people's idea. This is God's idea, but he would institute kingship in the way to display his kingdom in what a true king is to be based on his plan and his choice. And this is what God is doing. Next, the Lord says, I have, let's observe, observe this, I have provided for myself a king. Now, it kind of gets lost, but in the Hebrew, that, that word is literally seen. I have seen for myself a king. If you recall back in chapter 15, last week we, we emphasized this theme of hearing, of God's voice, of listening. In chapter 16, we've got a little bit different theme, and it is on seeing. We're going to trace this through as we, as we work through the text. So just put a pin in that. God sees for himself a king. But first, God tells Samuel this, verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel is fearful in this moment. He's, he's scared. I mean, this feels very treasonous, right? He's going to go and behind Saul's back and choose another king. And uh, with Saul's sort of horrible, reckless behavior that we have seen, this is understandable. But God instructs him to go, and he gives them sort of this cover that he would offer a sacrifice in what, when he goes. And when he's there, he will get the next detail of who he's to anoint. And yet, unlike Saul, Samuel takes courage, obeys the voice of the Lord, even in the face of fear. And we read in verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? More fear. More fear here. These guys are trembling. Now, Samuel is fearful of Saul. The Bethlehem elders are fearful of Samuel. Why? Now, why is this? Now, if, if you were the elders of the town and Samuel just showed up, the prophet of the Lord, and news of recent has gotten around Twitter and everything else that Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces before the Lord, I think there would be a little cause for some anxiety or concern. Why are you here? Um, and is this to pronounce some sort of judgment? But Samuel says, and he said, peaceably. That would be good news. They're wiping sweat out their forehead, and they're like, praise Yahweh. <laughs> Nothing is going to happen in that regard. He tells them, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel consecrates, meaning he does the process of a ceremony to make them clean and holy before the Lord and invites Jesse and his boys to be a part. And each son passes by. 
So we have this tension here. Who, who will this anointed one be? This sort of suspense. Who is this one of the Lord's choosing? The first up is the firstborn. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Note, it says Samuel looked. He, he sees Jesse's oldest and thought and makes a judgment. By what? By, by appearance. By what he looked like. I mean, surely this is the one. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn. Maybe he's tall and handsome and, and muscular. And he's just thinking, this has got to be, this has got to be the guy. I was talking with a young guy the other day, and he was, he's a bit of a sneaker collector, apparently. And he said, you know what? I can tell a lot about people by the shoes they wear. I get what he's saying. Like, maybe, maybe there's, does that person have a lot of money? You know, are they professional? Do they work out, you know, in farm fields? Um, or are the expensive shoes they're wearing just proof that they're very bad stewards of their money? Do they have a good style? I mean, but, but we just we sort of push into that. Are they, are they a nice person? Are they integral? What, what can you tell more deeply about this individual? I think it's more of an indicator of our, our Western culture and our, our love as we pointed to, our love of appearance and the exterior, the priority we make and we put even on things like what we put ourselves out in social media. How, how do we want to be presented? And the Lord has a different perspective to all of that. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, the irony here is Samuel is what they call then the seer. He is the prophet. He's the seer. He's the one that should see. And yet even the prophet of the Lord can't see in himself. Not without the Lord's help. The Lord's eyes, for the the Lord sees, the Lord knows perfectly and rightly and all his willing and choosing is best and is best. And it's what he wants, what he wants and what he desires is the most important thing. Isn't this been the lesson all along? Trust Yahweh. Look to Yahweh. He knows. Trust him. Follow what he says. Look to what he says is best. Some commentators would actually point to this verse as, as one of, if not the main theme verse of First Samuel. There's so much here. We're just going to take a, a little bit of time to, to look at it. First Samuel is commanded, notice what God said, don't be mesmerized by what you see, appearances, by looking at the height of the stature. What is, what is he saying? Well, amazingly, we see this word, Usage for height, only two other places in all of 1 Samuel. One, if you recall, was regarding Saul's description. Remember how he was described earlier in Samuel? He was taller than anyone in all of Israel. He was tall and handsome. The other reference to height, where is that? It's, it's actually in Hannah's prayer. Remember how important Hannah's prayer is to all of understanding this story. 
And it's, it's more hidden. She, she prays, do not go on boasting so very proudly. That, that word actually is the same word for height. The, the very proudly. Do, do not go on boasting highly and elevated. The, what's the point? The, the proud, the, the one lifted up in his own heights or that we lift up in our own mind, in our own, own uh, evaluation. Kings and leaders and the people like Saul will all in the end come crashing down. But what is God's perspective? God, God looks at the heart and he, he uses and lifts up the humble, the small, the little who look on faith on him. We must keep in mind their eyes on this truth that Hannah prophesied of, for not by might shall a man prevail. And we will see God call the little, the small here in a moment. So God directs him to not consider the height. And then God says of Eliab, because I have rejected him. Now this seems kind of intense. But where have we seen that word rejected before already? It's an echo of what we've been seeing several times through this book about Israel and about Saul. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Samuel tells Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And what we just read in verse 1 of Saul, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. But we should hear these repetitions and this connection. Nothing that Eliab had done to deserve rejection, aside from him being firstborn and tall. But I think God is hammering this point. If God's people rely on their ability, on ideas of what they think is right, inserting their voice above God's voice in His words, or perceiving from their eyes, judging by our own judgments, outside of leaning on God's words and what He sees in God's judgments, it will only be failure. It's only going to be rejection. We need God's intervention. His word to see. We... We have shows, TV shows like The View. I, I'm not familiar with the show. I don't watch that show. But there's ones like that where we've got a group of people kind of talking heads that have a, have a subject, and they all give their thoughts on that subject. Experts on all, all subjects of the world. But each person is giving their perspective, and we, we do the same thing. We come together. We have our point of view, how we see something. Yet each of us are seeing uh, our perspective is different, but it, in the end is, is limited. It is human. It is, it is finite. And yet God sees not like man sees, because he sees all things. And he all, sees all things perfectly, and he sees them fully, end from the beginning. Uh, I love this, what John Woodhouse says. Therefore, if God has a point of view, that point of view will not simply be one more point of view among many others his unlimited point of view will have absolute validity. His view is not one of many. His view is the view. God sees not as man sees. And his view is the view that we need, that Israel needed. How does man see? Man sees on outward appearances. We assess from our own idolatrous hearts and left to ourselves, we will judge in error. We will discern in error. Left to ourselves, we will be deceived. And, and this is what Israel 
did and were doing. They looked around, they saw kings of other nations and decided that was what was best and good. It is what happened in the garden. Something, some fruit looked delicious to our, their eyes, desirous of their our hearts, and they assessed that this was best. So, what will we trust? What, what view will we seek to have most clearly? Our own or his absolute perfect view? And God sees the heart. God sees the heart. For his king and his people, he is interested in their heart. Hearts of faith and trust in him. He, he is not, he's not amused or distracted by, by outward religious performance and sacrifices. We saw that last week. The, the sacrifices that Saul thought would somehow cover what was going on and he was rebuked because God saw through it all. He, he sees the heart. He he sees the heart, he, or he judges by the heart, the true us. What, what, is, what is our heart? The heart is who we really are. All our willing and feeling and believing flows from our hearts, and it's there that real character is seen and where true worship flows from. And this chosen king must have a heart for the Lord to love and worship him, to obey and trust his words. It was what? Israel was called to. It's what God's people are called to, to love God with all our hearts. And in God's ultimate seeing, he will choose a king. Uh, The Lord was, remember, seeking a man after his own heart. A a man that has a heart for God, but a a man that God, a king that God is going to choose from his own willing. And how how will Samuel know? Well, he needs the Lord's insight. So then we kind of have like this Cinderella story that, that unfolds. One foot, and then the other foot, and what happens? Verse 8. Then Jesse had Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So one by one, all seven go by, looking, looking, not chosen, not chosen, not chosen, pass, 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 pass. And they're all done. And then Samuel says to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but you know, behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. I mean, it's, I don't know what to make of like a dad. Like, oh yeah, it's the other son. They like totally forgot about him. Like, this is what he thought of his youngest. And this youngest boy, this little boy, it can be translated littlest or smallest. This boy that was the youngest, the littlest, the smallest, not at all tall, but little, small, ordinary, and what seems like unimportant, so unimportant that his dad forgot about him. But recognize something, the boy is out with his sheep. Now the, the shepherding motif, we actually read some text this morning that pointed to that. The shepherding motif is throughout the scriptures and it, and it often points to leadership. Good leaders or good kings were recognized as good shepherds. Bad leaders, bad kings were horrible shepherds. And we, the reader, should see, see a contrast. Do you, do you recall, do you remember where we met 
Saul initially, what was he going to try to find? His dad's lost donkeys. That, that's a bad thing. You're lost. The shepherd lost his dad's donkeys. And here's Jesse's youngest. He's out among the father's sheep, shepherding well, busy, and faithful. So verse 12, and he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Did you notice something? The boy, the boy was handsome and had beautiful eyes. Like, why, why now draw attention to what would seem outward appearances? I mean, it highlights outward appearances. Didn't God just say that that didn't matter to him? Well, he actually didn't say that. God didn't say that these don't matter to him. But we should understand it's, it's not that to God the outside is unimportant or the appearance is, un, is unimportant. But as we saw last week, God doesn't regret like man regrets. And God doesn't see like man sees. The issue is man wrongly elevates and is deceived by these, these very things. And he desires the heart to be the priority. So, God says, this is he, verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Amazing. Samuel anoints him and God, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity, rushed on David. The spirit that we've seen come upon leaders like Moses and Joshua and rushed upon, rushed upon the rescuers in the book of Judges like Samson, rushed upon Saul. The spirit of the Lord now comes upon David. And yet notice, it wasn't just circumstantial or temporary like Saul or the judges. It reads, from this day forward. So something better has come. Something is going on that's, that's greater and more powerful than what we've seen before. He is anointed. The Spirit is upon him. And David is now the king designate. And like Saul, he is anointed as king, but his official induction didn't come till later. We're going to see the same thing with David. This is going to be many years off. So the secret ceremony takes place, which, you know, I'm not sure everyone knew what was really going on. And Saul leaves, and then there's like this dramatic turn here in our next part. We read in verse 14, the active spirit comes upon David, and then we read, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Wow, the spirit departs from Saul, spirit we saw descended upon David, and not only that, the Lord sends a harmful spirit to Saul that torments him. Now this is Weird, like, does this feel, like, wrong? I mean, a lot of questions could come of this little thing going on. But as we saw last week, there are difficult things in Scripture at times that we cannot fully understand. This was one of those where there is lots of debate around. But we do know that God is righteous in all his ways. God's authority, he is over all, and he permits and sends this oppressive spirit upon Saul, and he can do so without any evil on his part. But let's remember, Saul rejected God. Saul was in sin, and the Lord brought judgment upon him, his soul, 
in the form of this harmful spirit. And it, it was observable, some sort of anguish, emotional, mental distress. But the deeper issue was a spiritual issue and condition. And he needed a, a spiritual solution. So this troubled thing that everyone is observing, we see in verse 15, that Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. They notice it. They see it. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So we get some good counsel from his servants. And so sounds good to Saul. Verse 17, so Saul sends to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Saul takes a suggestion, and he says, provide for me a man. Now, the original hearers would have picked up on some of the exact same language as we just saw in verse 1. Provide or see for myself a king. And now here, Saul is saying, provide or see for me a man. This is is stunning. What, What do we make of this? Well, behind Saul's choosing and seeing is actually all of God's seeing and choosing. Saul doesn't know it. The servants don't know it. But as we see unfold, this is all God's doing. One of the young men, he had a great idea. This guy probably got a promotion after this. Answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Servant's like, I know a guy. I know a guy. And look at this description. It is, it's amazing. Skillful at playing, a man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech, of good presence. But, but look at most of all, Yahweh, the Lord, is with him. Others recognize God's presence upon this boy, this man, David. What was Saul recognized as? Saul was just tall. He had a good chin and a good nose. But the Lord is with David. This is a better man. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son. Where is he? Who is with the sheep. Faithful shepherd. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and he entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Now remember we're reading Old Testament story, right? In stories there's dramatic irony. That's what makes stories great, right? And what, what, what we know as the reader, they don't really know. And this, is, this should sort of amaze us. As Saul is welcoming David into his court to serve him, that he thought he provided for himself, he chose. David is the very man that God chose to replace him. This is all in God's plan. The rejected king whom the Spirit just left is the one who chooses the man, the better king, who was just anointed by Samuel and is empowered by the Spirit and is now right in his house, in his court, serving him as his armor bearer, and Saul loved him. Wow. And, and we, we need to take note, the actual first time that we hear David's name is out of Saul's mouth. 
David is the servant in the rejected king's court, and he is the true and better king. Who could, who could have planned this? Who could have seen this? Only the Lord. Verse 22, And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the spirit, harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Saul wanted to keep David close, and in God's design and plan, he was present now kind of full-time. And David's skillful playing, his serving, worshiping the Lord, God used this playing and this music this, to lift this tormenting spirit and bring peace and refreshment to Saul. There's so much, so much going on here, like what implications of worship and what God was doing in this. And I, I just, as I pondered this, this week, I just thought, why did God send a troubling spirit to then send a comforting presence in David? Maybe a thought would be, could this be a picture of something spiritual going on? Right? The picture of Saul, the people's king, like other nations, is being tormented. A picture of Israel's trouble that they have brought upon themselves because of their rejection of the Lord. And yet, and yet, even in their rebellion, God is sending and providing a comforter, an unlikely savior to his covenant people. The Lord, even after they have rejected him as king, they've embraced this human, flesh, man ways of seeing in God's mercy and God's covenant love and grace. He presses in and provides his presence and songs of freedom over them. You see God's grace in this? Though God has rejected Saul and all seems broken, it is not broken to the Lord. It is not undone for the Lord. The Lord has not rejected His promised people to love them and to rescue them and save them. In His sovereign and grace and kindness, He chooses and brings them a king who will faithfully lead them and shepherd them. I love this quote by Dale Davis. He says, Yahweh is able to provide a new beginning. He will provide for His people when all is coming undone. The true king never loses control of his kingdom. He is never nonplussed by the latest emergency in his realm. Hence, Yahweh's choice spells hope. Because God is on the throne, because he is king, he is never hopeless. He's never undone. The latest emergency isn't going to undo his good plan. God provides when things seem like they are unraveling and there is hope for Israel in David. But, but David, David is just, he's just pointing us to something greater. He's, he's a foreshadowing of a greater hope that, that God's people needed and that we need hope, hope that's in a person, a better king, ultimately seen in Jesus. And the scriptures continue to point us this way and connect us to this thing that happened in this very story. David is from Bethlehem, a region of Judah. Jesus would come from the line of Judah, this shoot of Jesse. And this is how the prophet Isaiah spoke of this many, many years later. 
A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness to sash around his waist. Isaiah was seeing and speaking of a king, a better king, who will truly see. He will fear and trust the Lord and will judge righteously and he will save his people and provide for his people in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus would come. Jesus would come and he would be filled with, empowered with the Spirit. And as he went and ministered, he would point to himself once again to Isaiah, fulfilling what the prophet said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. To bring freedom to those who are in prison. To bring sight to those who are blind. Jesus came as the better, humble king who in the power of the Spirit sets the hearts of his people free, transferring them from darkness to light through what he has done in his gospel. What do we do with this good news in King Jesus? Well, we should, we should read 1 Samuel 16 and it should cause us to be humbled and worship. But we thank God and worship him for his grace. Because what did he do? He came and saved, and, and he came and chose a people when he saw everything. God sees our needy condition, and rather than reject us, the good shepherd comes. He comes near to us to offer his salvation so that we can have eyes to see him. I praise God. I praise God that he didn't come to me, and he looked me up and down, and he didn't make a decision by outward appearance or my shoes or by some attempt of mine outwardly, some religious performance. And that determines me being worthy of his love and his forgiveness and his acceptance. He actually saw deep into my heart and your heart and all of our junk. All of our junk then, before we came to Christ, and even all of our junk this week. And he sees what's really going on. And it's what we heard from Romans 5 today. Why will we yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news, saints. This is wonderful news. This is humbling news. This is what the Apostle Paul knew when he came and he saw, when he re, uh, uh, writes that Jesus came for the weak and the needy and the nobodies and by appearance the world would perceive as foolish and a cross that seems foolish and would say God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. This was a work of his grace. This was a work of his mercy. The one who doesn't look at outward appearance, but sees to the heart and came to transform our hearts, to Save us, cleanse us, 
And in God's economy, it is the humble and the lowly and the needy who know they need that, that come to him, that are lifted up into his grace and into his love, only by his grace. So this this passage should draw us to worship King Jesus and humble us in it. And it should challenge us. Verse 7 should challenge us to, to ask a question of our hearts. Where do we, where are we prone to look first or too much to outward appearances? Judgment. Being easily led astray to, to false hopes or false things or people by what we, what we would see. Just humanly on the outward. Or where, where are, would we try to make ourselves look look high and lifted up in the eyes of others. We, we need the Lord's help to go to our heart in this. We should desire to see more like God sees. Obviously, we are not sovereign. We cannot see fully as he is, but we need to see as he sees, as we hear his word. We humble ourselves. We acknowledge that we cannot see without him. We need his spirit. We need his word. And we cannot know without God's help. And most importantly, we cannot know without Jesus. We need Jesus. And it's through Jesus and his word that we can understand and interpret our world to know what is pleasing to the Lord and to know how to to love rightly. So we're humbled. We're humbled in his love. And then from that, we, we realize that as we move towards others, we need humility. We need humility that doesn't look, up, look down on others with proud judgments with our eyes, but moves towards others at a heart level most deeply. God wants us to see as he sees, and that comes by us fixing our hearts on Jesus. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we become more like God's chosen king, Jesus, is the one that deserves all of our hearts, attention, our trust, and our treasuring. And so let us keep hearing his words so that we would know his desires to see as he sees. And as we do, our hearts will grow to be more like his, and his likeness conform more more in us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us today of your grace and your kindness in Jesus. Left to ourself, we would be we would be driven and compelled by the, the things that we see that we, we think are right. And that path, as we see with Saul, only leads to a dismal place. A rejection ultimately. But God, you condescended, you came, Christ Jesus, and you you choose, you call weak things that the, the world would see as weak and lowly. And God, you save. And so we bow our hearts, we, we humble ourselves this morning, and we say, Lord, we need we need your heart. We need to see more like you. And Lord, thank you for giving us Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we behold God. And when we behold you, Lord, we are transformed 
as the word tells us, from one degree to another, we become more like you, Christ. So work your heart in us. And humble us, Lord, so that we would look around and we would not see as man sees, Lord, but we would we would seek to see more as you see. And that, that means moving towards others with that same toward a kind of love that they would know you, Jesus. Be lifted up, King Jesus, in our hearts. Make us more like you, Lord. Amen.